Welcome to the Babecast. I'm your host, Dr. Babe, also known as Dr. Taylor Burroughs. So I'm the unconventional therapist, coach, and consultant helping individuals, couples, companies, and groups transform the way they think about relationships. Now, when I say relationships, I'm not just talking about with other people, but also with yourself. So what I'm really interested in is finding out what people are passionate about, what their story is, and how they connect to their purpose and develop the best self that they can be inspiring other people. On today's episode, I'm talking with Tanner Guzzi. He is a coach that works with men on developing their unique masculine style. Among other things, he is a handsome masculine man himself, a father of three, and a husband, and he lives in Salt Lake City, Utah with his family. So... Welcome to the Babecast. This is Tanner. My name is Tanner Guzzi, and I run a men's style site called Masculine Style. I've been doing it since about 2010, and I focus on teaching men how to dress more intentionally. Now, a lot of guys, when they first hear that, they think that what I basically do is tell guys that they need to wear suits all the time, and that's about as far from the truth as it can be because I understand that we live in a different world than men of a hundred years ago lived in. And the suit is not the uh, only weapon or the only style weapon that a man should have in his arsenal. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be thinking about what you wear, that there's no impact to what you put on your body and how your clothing affects you. And so I teach men how to be able to think proactively and even a little bit philosophically about how their clothing affects not only their view of themselves, but also the way that other people treat them and interact with them and how leveraging their appearance can actually help them get ahead in life and, and see success in much bigger arenas and things that matter a whole lot more than just how you look, but it can affect things like your relationships or your work or your fitness or all these other, uh, all these other variables. Um, In addition to that, Mm -hmm. uh, just a little bit about me personally, I'm based out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I'm a father of three, very happily married. Been married for about seven years. Um, I uh, enjoy trying to push my body in ways that I can as far as uh, I enjoy going to the gym. I've been doing boxing for the last couple of years, really falling in love with that. Um, and most of my free time is spent just being a dad and spending time with my family and trying to raise my kids into good, productive members of society and loving doing that That's with my awesome. wife. That's awesome. I mean, I, I think we talk a lot about gender you know roles and stuff on the podcast so that fits in as well and I might I might ask you a few questions about your relationship if that's okay please do yeah yeah um, absolutely but we can start with with kind of this what you do and how you're helping gentlemen develop themselves um I know I've taken a little bit of a, a peek at at your your websites and I and I love the quiz that you use to help men sort of target uh, what they're looking for. Could you tell us a little bit about the the quiz and the archetypes in particular? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you go over to my site, uh, one of the first things that you'll find is an opportunity to take an archetype quiz. It's only about seven or eight questions long, and it'll tell you which of three style archetypes is your main one. And I've found as I've spent years, not only talking about this stuff, but teaching clients one-on-one or working with guys in groups that most men when they realize that they don't like the way that they look, they immediately default to, okay, well, I have to dress more formally. So that means that I need to put on a suit or I need to wear a sport coat or something else. And kind of like we said in the intro, that's not always the right answer. What you should be wearing is very contextual. And a lot of times guys don't know how to be able to navigate that context. And so by 
taking the quiz and learning about the style archetypes, knowing whether you're primarily rugged, refined, or rakish, and I'm happy to dive into some detail on what those three look like, but you fit within those, all of a sudden takes a lot of the hesitation, a lot of the confusion, and a lot of the uh, trepidation out of deciding, okay, I don't like the way that I look. How do I actually start dressing the way that's better for me? So it just, it makes the process easier for everybody who goes through and, and learns where they fit with mm -hmm. them. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about each style just so that we don't, we're not guessing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the way that they break down is it's more based on how you actually interact with the world because your clothing should be a reflection of who you are internally as a man and the way that you interact with the world around you, it should help facilitate that as opposed to being something that, well, I, I like this style, therefore I'm going to adopt it, even if it doesn't necessarily work for me. And so the way that the three archetypes are broken down is you have rugged, refined, and rakish. And the way that those actually are laid out is a rugged man is someone who is very much involved in the physical world. He may be a blue collar worker. He may be somebody who enjoys physical and outdoor activities but somebody who's very much living a tangible world and his clothing needs to serve a very functional purpose and it needs to have a lot of that tied into it. The refined man is someone who lives in the world of people and he loves rules and hierarchies and status and finances and all these other things that really are kind of man-made, but also have obviously a very huge impact on, on our success in life. And not only does he embrace them, but he knows how to navigate them and he's happy to do so. And then the rakish man is someone who also understands just as well as the refined man, all of the world of men and civilization, hierarchy, status, all that kind of stuff. But rather than him thriving by playing by the rules, the rakish man actually thrives by breaking the rules. And so that's where you get guys like biker gangs or rock stars or rebels or iconoclasts and kind of any other context. It's these rakes who really enjoy kind of going against the grain. Now, what's really interesting is that most of us have enough in kind of one camp where we fit primarily into either rugged, refined, mm -hmm. or rakish. But where style gets really interesting for men is when we understand that we actually fit into all three and it's understanding the right ratio of how rugged am I, how refined am I, how rakish am I, and then how do I adequately express that through my clothing that that's where things get really fun, really authentic, really visually compelling as well. That's where style gets really good. That makes sense to me that, you know, depending on, the, I guess, the context or the, the mood, um, that it could be a fluid thing and that there's different proportions to each of, or ratios to each of those things. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, especially if you think about somebody who, you know, maybe he works for a big tech company, you know, and he's in Silicon Valley and, he has to wear something different day to day when he's going and meeting with his design team than he does when he's meeting with investors. And that should very much be different than what he wears when he's going to the gym and having your appearance be fluid because it's not an identity. It's just a tool. And so being able to see that distinction and understand that you use different tools for different jobs when you're physically building something and using different tools for different jobs when it comes to your appearance is totally appropriate. And it's a really good way to be able to get better at doing the job. How do you work with people specifically on, on these factors? So, uh, yeah, I do, uh, I do two different methods of coaching. The first one is being able to work with clients one-on-one. -on -one. And once they get onto the site, they take a quiz and then kind of they'll get onto my newsletter and they get daily emails that way. Most of the time there's some links to applying to work with me and, 
and being able to, to go through the process that way. Um, my one-on-one -on -one clients are the ones who get a really robust program and, and uh, my favorites work with because we get to spend a lot of time together. But then for guys who are not looking to put in that much of an investment, but are still wanting to see a lot of progress, uh, I do versions of group coaching um, or even just a lot of free content by going through the website. It's a seven-week program for my one-on-one -on -one clients that depending on if they need to do more, we can extend it out beyond that. Six weeks for my group guys. And the thing that I tell all these guys, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or group, is that one of the big things that you do when you come to work with me is I'm not a stylist. I'm not going to get to know you on a very superficial level and then help you pick out 30 different pieces of clothing with the understanding that you're not actually learning how to dress yourself and that you're going to have to call me again and pay me again in six months so that we can do the whole thing all over again. There are people who do that. It's not a bad thing, but that's not the way that I do it. I teach you how to be able to think about this yourself so that in six months when it's a new season or in six years when you're in a new season of your life and your style needs to evolve according to that, you understand the principles and develop the skill set well enough that you don't need me. You can totally do mm -hmm. it on your own. And I can relate to that as a therapist because in my profession, a lot of my peers will, will, will be like the, the stylist, will pretty much create a uh -huh. dependence um, on themselves for the client. And I don't believe in that either. I think it's, it's much more effective. It's much more rewarding uh, and purposeful to be able to teach or in, somehow inspire the person to find the answers within themselves and be able to guide themselves to whatever it is that makes them content. And, uh, and, you know, I guess it takes also a, a level of confidence or a level of like almost that that abundance mentality that you don't have to compete mm -hmm. with some s scarce resources or whatever you, you know you don't have to keep people dependent on you nope nope i i love that my guys get to the point where they don't need me and and i would much rather see them succeed that way and have to chase a new client uh than you know having to keep them dependent on me and and feeling like in some way that I've cheated them or done something else because I haven't been able to actually help them learn to do this on their own. So yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> and you've been doing this for a while, but how many clients would you say you've probably uh, helped? Well, that's what's fun is the, it's changed a lot. I mean, when I first started doing this a few years ago, uh, my coaching was very different. And so with my current level of programming with one-on-one -on -one guys, I've been doing it for about a year and I've been lucky to bring on about 20 five different clients group guys or the, the way that I've been doing stuff. It's been hundreds of guys over the, over the years. That's amazing. And I find I like groups. Um, I don't know how it happened. How does it work online? A group online? Um, we, uh, we have it set up where they follow the same curriculum and everybody goes through all that together. Uh, we have a private Slack channel where we're able to interact with each other and I'm all active on there and answering questions. And what's really fun is, guys from previous classes within the same group are also still allowed to be in there. And so a lot of times they're the ones diving in and answering questions, which you understand probably very well. Mm -hmm. That's beneficial to both the person who's asking the question and the guy who was the one asking the questions, but now he gets to answer and solidify his own understanding of the principles. And then we do a, uh, a weekly video call. And so we'll be able to get on there and do stuff face to face and do Q and A's that way as well. So it's one of those things where I have lurkers who will come in and they may be just consuming the content and 
I never really get to see how well they do, but the guys who interact and take full advantage of the community and the group dynamic and everything else are the ones who see a lot of progress and it's a lot of fun to see them make those changes. Mm-hmm. And how many people are in the groups in particular? It just depends. Um, at any point uh, on a call, there may be two guys or maybe 20 guys. And so it's always an open group that uh, I've got a, a few, I've probably got a hundred guys in there at this point that are, that are kind of holdovers from previous classes and stuff. Interesting. I haven't, I haven't really uh, turned that corner into an online forum yet, but I love doing group uh, counseling or coaching, whatever you want to call it uh, in face-to-face mm-hmm. format. Uh, I find it extremely powerful. I and, and I agree with you. I think they learn a lot from each other that I can never provide to them, and that that's the the power of the group element. Like you said, um, solidifying what they've learned and being able to uh, help other people. Uh, whether it's even just altruism in general is a very um, yeah. fortifying concept or, or activity for people. And I, and I think it's really rewarding when you, you've experienced some challenge or stress or even some wound or trauma in your life that when you're able to reach, reach down and then help somebody else who's struggling in whatever fashion or f- format, you know, I think that that really does, it, it does help you a lot as well, not to be selfish, but it's just, it's just a part of the circle. <laughs> Well, it's that abundance mindset like mm-hmm. you were talking about. It's just bringing that all around again. And we benefit from that with knowledge as much as we do with any other resource that we have available mm-hmm. to us. Definitely. So maybe I might try to look into how to do that on my end. But I'm still building my own client uh, caseload, I guess, online. Um, so yeah. it's still in the early stages for me. So I'm I'm kind of, uh, you know, trial and error. And, and I'm trying not to do that and, and really try to learn the the resources that I need to, to get under my belt in order to properly launch. But I think it is somewhat a, a learning curve and you have to sort of do it gradually. You can't rush the process to that much. Yeah, I've found myself dealing with that a lot too, where I will... Uh... I'll follow guys who I look up to. Uh, Taki Moore is a really good one when it comes to he's what I've gone through a couple of his programs when it comes to coaching and expertise. Same thing with Russell Brunson or a lot of these other guys. And um, a lot of times they're talking about scaling and how you, you know, start working with a VA and all this other stuff. And it's really exciting to think about dealing with that problem. But if you're really focusing on that before you even have enough clients that dealing with them one-on-one is too much for you to handle, then, you're putting the cart before the horse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, I mean, um, just to move into a little bit of your family in particular and your, your marriage, if I could, since, mm-hmm. you know, I am a marriage <laughs> therapist. That's kind of my, my shtick. <laughs> so lately I've been posting and talking to a lot of people, you know, in when developing my own business, people obviously ask and they want to know who am I speaking to? Who is my ideal client? And as much as I want to say my ideal client is a woman in my own position that I'm speaking to from a Mm -hmm. personal relevance level, a lot of times my client ends up being men. (laughs) It's just, it's, I I definitely do not, do not um, promote uh, getting advice from a woman, but I think a lot of men do seek out the expertise of a female professional that they think might have both the insight into the female mind 
and also I think maybe understanding of all of this uh, gender related stuff, right? So a lot of my clients are men. I haven't actually had females approach me from online yet. Uh, So what I'm dealing with mostly is men who have come to, you know, all this information online about gender and red pill and all that sort of stuff more recently. And so let's say, let's say they're, you know, 40, 40 years old and maybe a couple Mm -hmm. of years ago, if even that long, they came into this information, have gotten really a lot of, a lot of um, questions answered for themselves, developed their confidence, developed their fitness. But what's happened is their, their quality of their marriage was poor to begin with, but now it's even more tumultuous because in the way I describe it, it's almost like it's a change in the belief systems have changed whereas even though it was more dormant and maybe they were in denial before now it's more pronounced because let's say the man is coming from more of a red pill framework and the female is coming from still the blue pill framework it's like you know you need Mm -hmm. to resolve this and figure out what the heck you're going to do like is she going to change her worldview and are you going to you know be a unified front from this new perspective so there's all this dilemma happening um from these men that are already married and then come to this information and then try to apply it in their marriage and are having all this friction if that makes sense absolutely in fact i have personal experience with that and so i i know right where you're coming from so this i think is the other the sort of male uh complement to my ideal clients and if you can and i and i'm just i was just throwing it out there because i'm assuming you didn't start off knowing all this information, even though you have your particular unique background, um, you know, and I just mean that anybody has their own unique background, but um, how did, how did, did it happen like that for you in any, to any degree? And how did you come to terms with that or address that in your marriage? Yeah, great question. So for me, it was uh, probably a very typical story as far as um, I grew up as a nice guy. You know, I have uh, two very loving parents. And uh, just as far as the way personalities work out, my mom is a lot more dominant than my dad. And thankfully, with uh, cultural norms where we are and things like that, in a lot of ways, that can still work out for them where my dad's certainly not a, a doormat. And my mom still has a lot of respect for them, or for him. But when it comes to like the day to day stuff, uh, my mom just has a stronger personality than my dad. And so I grew up with that kind of being the norm. Uh, grew up as a nice guy. I was very uh, inoculated with things like, uh, you know, emo music <laughs> and stuff like that when I was in high school. And so it was very much kind of your, your typical nice guy. Thankfully, I was also confident enough, uh, not necessarily athletic, but had enough dexterity and was in decent shape and, and all that kind of stuff that dating wasn't necessarily difficult for me. But uh, I, I definitely was was a, a huge nice guy. Uh, and so I I had gotten married when I was 23 and that was kind of the dynamic was I was the nice guy and the second in command. And my wife came from a family that was very much uh, the same way to the point where her dad is the doormat and stuff like that. And um, we did that for about three years and it was, it was hell. It sucked for both of us. And that was what kind of led me to trying to figure out, okay, well, how do I, how do I make this better? How can I, how can I improve on this? Because Marriage is not what it was supposed to be, and it's it's awful and it's miserable, and neither one of us is happy. 
Um, I ended up finding some old sites like a Hawaiian libertarian and the spearhead and stuff like that. You know, it was back in like 2009, 2010, Mm -hmm. which is what kind of introduced me to all this stuff. And I started to experiment and wanted to see how things would go. And like a lot of guys do, I kind of overcorrected where you go, you swing really far from one direction into the other. But to, to make a long story short, as I was willing to make all these changes and willing to try and have all this stuff uh, kind of align with where we were religiously and what our beliefs were and what our goals were and things like that. I, I found that my wife was not willing to do that. And so I know that this is not the ideal answer for a lot of guys, but I ended up filing for divorce um, with my first wife. And so we were divorced and thankfully there were no kids or anything else like that. And so there's nothing to tie us together. And I hope she's happy now, wherever she is, whoever she's with. But then I was very conscientious when it was time for me to remarry because it didn't sour me on marriage. Again, especially with my being Mormon and things like that, marriage is is such a huge part of my foundation of not only the world now, but uh, the world to come and things like that. Be, not getting married again, not having a family was it's not an option for me. And so I was not soured on the idea of it. I just knew that I had done it wrong. And so when it was time to start dating again and find the right person, uh, a right person. Um, I was very conscientious about looking for somebody who was not only willing, but was wanting to embrace the traditional gender rules and roles and things like that. And, and that's what I found in my wife that we've been married now for seven years and we've got three kids and we have a fantastic dynamic between the two of us. And she's very aware of, you know, I have to, hide anything on my Twitter feed or things like that. She's very aware of the red pill world and stuff like that. And, and uh, we're stronger because of it. That's great. I mean, I think one of the first things that I reacted to and, and, and not a bad way, but just noticing that I think in this community online, at least that there's a different response that I think men and women are receiving when they have that experience. Like for me as a, from a personal standpoint, me being divorced as well, I think people respond to, to me being the woman. And in my case, I initiated the divorce as well um, in a much more negative light versus you and your position, maybe coming to the same realizations that I did um, and maybe not getting as much pushback, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Well, and to be totally, to be totally transparent, I mean, obviously I can talk about it now relatively easily seven years later, but there was a lot of pushback, especially again, culturally, the world that I live in, divorce is, is not, it's not normal. It doesn't happen. It's not the kind of thing that you engage in and anything that's considered to be frivolous, which for the most part is anything beyond abuse or infidelity is, is really negative. And when my wife and I, uh, my current wife and I, when we first got married, neither one of our families were happy about it. We got a ton of pushback. And I mean, my, uh, my ex-wife, she had me, she had me thrown in jail over a failure to comply with the divorce decree stipulation about selling her house. Wow. And she and her friends tried to ruin my online reputation by writing about how big of a misogynist I was because of the red pill stuff. Oh my I mean, gosh. By no means. Yeah. I was not, it was not an easy thing uh, for me to make that decision or to follow through or to, to pick up the pieces that came after it. And what really sucks is that I still know that that was the right decision because I would do another 10 years of all of that with her 
to be in the life that I'm in with my wife and my kids right now in a heartbeat. It's so much better now. Exactly. And that, that, that kind of sucks and it's hard to hear, but that's still the reality of it. Well, I appreciate you being honest about that. I mean, I can understand how difficult it must be or must have been. Um, and I, I think people who have not experienced, you know, anything like this, they don't understand. I think they look at it through obviously naive glasses, whether they're younger, or they're just, I don't know, just to have a negative viewpoint about judging people. Um, but it is not easy. You don't ever seek to get into a bad marriage and then pursue divorce. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how people can even, you know, think that way, but, um, what we have to experience in real life (laughs) is extremely difficult. Um, and I I can only imagine, I don't know that much about the Mormon community. Um, but I know in my community here, it's a very conservative, Christian, uh, tight-knit, mm-hmm. large family atmosphere. And yeah, people are very judgmental. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks. Yeah. <laughs> yep. And it sucks because there's legitimate reasons for them being that way and reacting that way. And they're maintaining that culture is why the divorce rates are lower and why family is so important. Mm-hmm. So they aren't wrong for reacting that way. But you're also not wrong for getting out of a situation like that that's absolutely awful. And for me, the big, the big uh, kind of thing that tilted it over the edge was the recognition of I want to have kids and I cannot bring them into this environment. If I had already had kids with her, I would have just had to suck it up and tough it out. But the fact that I didn't for me mm-hmm. was just the, the moral imperative of, of having kids and being able to, to benefit the world that way was more important than dealing with the stigma and the scarlet letter almost Mm -hmm. of of having gone through a divorce. And I, I was really blessed that I was able to, to start over again. And I know that that's not an option for everybody. And my heart goes out to, to men and women who do have kids and it's not, you don't get a clean slate in a lot of ways, in a while, in a lot of ways, like I did. And even though mine wasn't clean from the beginning, it certainly is now. And nobody knows about, a divorce unless I tell them about it or things like right. that. And I, I do, my heart goes out to people who have to deal with much longer lasting repercussions of, of those kind of decisions and implications than what I personally have to deal with. Yeah. And as a, a marriage therapist, oftentimes it, it, it feels more like a, being a divorce therapist, right? Um, oh yeah. I people bet. just really prolong things until they're they're It's way too late and it's not salvageable. Uh, so I try, I try not to internalize a lot of that and be, uh, pessimistic and, and nihilistic about things. I'm definitely romantic, but it's often the case that it's, you know, kids involved and assets divided. And especially here mm-hmm. in a community like mine, there's a lot of immigration issues. So if you'll have, you, oh, you have man. like expatriates either that are from different countries and they came here together with kids and then now they are separating or divorcing and they have to decide where are the kids going to go? What's the custody issue? Who's making more money? It just, it's a very convoluted process. Um, and it's not, it's not easy. That's for sure. But um, I get what you're saying as well. in, in regards to you wouldn't, you wouldn't trade um, your decision based on trying to make everybody happy, even though they were well-intended um, you made the right decision for you. And I think, you know, it's interesting because I've never really been been one of those women that longed to be a mother. 
or idealized more of the domesticated lifestyle. And I think I've written mm-hmm. about, you know, um, I never really considered myself a feminist, but now being on this side of things, I realized that I, I really was sort of in, a, in, a, in effect. I was. <laughs> it's all yeah, relative, right? Yeah, I was, I was living my life as, I, as if I were a feminist. But um, now, okay, with my ex-husband, I definitely came to the same point. And I remember literally sitting on the couch and kind of looking at him across the room. And it felt like I was looking into the barrel of a gun, literally. I think, I think that's mm-hmm. the visual that I had. Like, that was the tone. And I was very quiet for a couple of months. And I, wasn't, I didn't really know what I was processing. But, it, you know, now I can, I can see it. And it was very hard to explain at the time. But that's exactly what I envisioned. I said, I said to myself, we don't have kids. Neither of us are happy. You know, we want to make it work. He's never going to leave me because of his belief system. I have to be the one. It's got, and, if, and if I don't mm-hmm. do it now, what if I get pregnant? I don't know. Like, wh- I, who knows? And then everything's going to change. So that, I, that was a big, big part of why I decided to leave when I did um, before kids. Because, yeah, I, I knew it would be a whole different story if, if, I, if it was after that. But now, now it, coming from where I am now, and I guess my age and being a little bit older, now I know that I, would, I do want to have a family and it has to be with the right person. It has to be the right environment and the right bond and the right, yeah, dynamic involved for sure. It's gotta be healthy. Yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that's hard with that, my wife has experienced this quite a bit where um, motherhood and kind of the, the domesticity and all the other things that kind of come with that, there is irrespective of any social stigmas or anything else like that that come along there is, it's almost like you have to have an internal switch that kind of flips where I remember when, uh, when our oldest was about a year old, um, my wife had a really hard time and granted one is always harder than two, you know, having just one kid or even one dog or anything else. It's always, that first one is always harder, but for her, it was this kind of realization that she hadn't fully embraced that mother would be one of, if not her very primary identity. And, and, and as soon as she was able to flip that internal switch, she is the strongest ambassador for motherhood and being a wife and traditional gender roles. Because as soon as she made that internal switch, then everything, everything clicked into place and she's more happy, more fulfilled and less conflicted or anything else than she's ever been with any decision in her life. And I think the problem is, is that so many people, both men and women, when it comes to marriage and not only the benefits that come with it, but the responsibilities that are attached to it, we don't want to flip that internal switch. We don't want to have to totally embrace that this is part of who I am and this is part of how I now fit within the world. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's a tough thing to do, but when we can do it, and again, like you said, obviously doing it with the right person who is also willing to flip that internal switch that's that to me that's the difference between a successful or or a, a failing relationship mm. I like the way that you described that that makes a lot of sense to me and I'm just wondering I know you can only estimate and approximate this but how would you describe maybe and and, and it might be parallel for you but the, the internal conflict are you just saying internalizing the identity of being a parent or is it specific to your wife's experience as mother or independent woman or I don't know. Yeah, that's a good question. I think it has to do, I think it's kind of tied into all of that because 
Uh, obviously, so much of it is generational now, and this is a thing. It's kind of funny because I can even see this tied into style and how I teach mm-hmm. it. Because, you know, a hundred years ago, it was really easy to be well dressed for a man because everybody wore suits. If you were a construction worker, you wore suits. If you were a politician, you wore a suit. Whatever it was that you did for a living, if you wanted to dress well, you just wore a nicer or a better suit. Maybe it was. <laughs> you know, more expensive or, or it was cut a little bit better, or it had better material, but there was no real variation on that. And now we live in such a totally crazy society where every little tribe and every little subculture has their own status hierarchy and it's all signaled through different types of clothing and it's also convoluted and nobody belongs to just one tribe. And so you have to navigate all this other stuff. So what the crap do you wear? And it's the same thing when it comes to really anything within our identity. You know, for us being Mormon, that's such a primary driver of our identity that I think in a lot of ways it makes it easier for the women within our church to be able to turn that switch on that when I get married, I'm going to be a mom, I'm going to stay home with my kids, and I'm going to have a bunch of kids, and we're going to have this awesome white picket domestic life that everybody else thinks is totally fake, but we have it in our community and it's real. But generationally, as people in their 30s and in their 20s who are now getting conflicting viewpoints from the media that we consume or what we learn in school or things like that. I can't tell you how many of the girls who are my wife's peers will say, well, yeah, I really, really want to be a mom, but I also don't want to go crazy and it's going to make me bored. And so I want to work a part-time job or all these other things that it's just conflicting identities because we have mixed loyalties in all these different groups And so being able to turn one on and being able to embrace it totally as this is my primary one, I think is difficult, regardless of whether it has anything to do with being a parent or a mother or anything else, because we no longer get the luxury of just having loyalty to one tribe. Mm. Yeah, and and I almost feel like this entrepreneurial era that we're in is going to be helpful, I think, for, for women to get back to the to the home life because Mm -hmm. I think it's really getting us out of this nine to five expectation and recognizing that we can be productive without it having those sort of elements to it that are tangible, um, that, you know, have status attached to it socially because yeah, well, isn't that the dumbest measure of production? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Right? Like, it, it, oh, I moved some spreadsheets around for eight hours a day and somebody paid me for it. I don't care if you're a man or a woman. That is the stupidest <laughs> measure of production. Yeah. And, and back, you know, historically in different times, you know, you were, you were, the status was being able to be productive if you had a farm or if you made clothes exactly. or if you baked or whatever. Or if your kids made it to adulthood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Seriously. So, I mean, I almost feel like we can leverage this entrepreneurial uh, spirit in, in regards to returning to some of, all, some of those positives of the past um, and women seeing things differently because it, you're not going to go crazy not being – it's kind of like now being self-employed. I, you know, make my own time. I'm not really doing a whole bunch of stuff other than what I want to do, you know, <laughs> but it doesn't mean I'm... And I bet that was a weird adjustment, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it took, it, 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 I had to mentally get there over the course of a year before I actually left my job. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think people, like you said, flipping that switch, if you do it all of a sudden, it's, it's definitely going to be disorienting and frightening. Uh, there's always going to be anxiety when you have more, uh, less of a safety net, I guess. Um, right. But if, if it's all of a sudden, it, yeah, that's going to maybe create some, 
some problems, but I think women, especially in that case, they, they need to come to this in, in a gradual sense, maybe, you know, if they learn, um, even just the courting process, you know, if you're able to talk about these issues and plan for these things and process your, your, your values and your beliefs rather than rushing into a relationship and then all of a sudden your life is totally different or something, you know, that's when you, mm-hmm. when you get all this, the friction and the problems that I see. Yeah, I can see that for sure. But I, let me just go back to the, the client's, um, my ideal client from a male perspective. I'm wondering yeah. from, from your experience and just from maybe what you understand, what do you think would be uh, good, good advice or good um, recommendations for someone in that position who, you know, you hopefully maybe the ones that I'm speaking to don't have to get divorced, but if that is the only or the best solution, then so be it and uh, transitioning through that process the best that they can is, is the goal. But let's say, let's say they don't have to um, divorce, that it is some kind of solution is plausible. How do you think that they should navigate that? It's almost like a conversion process is what I called it. Yeah. Um, I think the first thing is to uh, make sure that you're not overcorrecting. Um, and again, you know, I experienced some of that myself. And it's, it's a tendency that every single one of us has where you go from nice guy to complete dickhead in zero <laughs> to, you know, in two seconds. And, and there really is, there is a problem with that. And I, I almost think to some extent it's kind of necessary because you've been so far away from what the line is that when you're trying to, you finally give yourself permission to realize it's like, oh, no, wait, like there's this whole other spectrum. You kind of got to figure out where the line mm-hmm. is, you know, and so give me, but don't don't allow yourself to just hang out there over the line and embrace that thinking that this is, this is functionally and morally and socially superior because it's the complete antithesis of everything that I used to be. Because unless the guy that you were was so awful and so bad that you could genuinely describe him as evil, then that means that there were things about you that were good that are still worth holding on to Maybe the manifestation of them sucked because it was a nice guy or it was very blue pill or something else. But don't abandon everything about who you used to be just because you realize that the old version of you is not the ideal version of you or certainly not the perfect version of you. And I think if guys can do that, then they can kind of temper this overzealousness or this overcorrection. And what's what's both frustrating but also hugely beneficial is that it makes it all of a sudden a lot easier or a lot more difficult, I mean, to be able to navigate, okay, so is this my old school nice programming? Am I overcorrecting? <laughs> Why is she responding to me this way? Do I allow myself to get frustrated by this? Do I talk about it with her? Do I call her out? Am I being passed? Like, it's not any easier, but you're at least allowing yourself to recognize that it's not just abandoning one identity loyalty for its opposite thinking that somehow that's going to solve all your problems. And if it doesn't, it's because she's awful. Right. Yeah. I, I, that makes sense to me too. Just being able to, to understand the, what you weren't <laughs> in order to integrate them. And so it's, it's uh-huh. part of that developmental process of in, individuation or in, in, internalization or whatever. Um, but how would you know, how would the man know that, 
there's no there's no compromise with his spouse or girlfriend or whatever. What do you what do you mean? Like no compromise. Like let's say like he's you know, he's he's not going too far, he's not overcorrecting, he finds a balance, but he recognizes what needs to change and his girlfriend or wife is just not willing to meet him in the middle and start to, you know, um, moderate her maybe feminist blue pill tendencies. Um, yeah, well, from my own personal experience, it, it was just that, that it didn't matter what I did, how big of a jerk or how nice I was or how much lead I took or how much lead I delegate, you know, I gave up or anything else like that everything was always my fault. And we, we didn't see a, a counselor. We spent some time seeing a coach uh, who kind of walked us through that. And he even called her out on it and said, you realize that uh, from, from your perspective, everything is always Tanner's fault. And this marriage would just be perfect if he could understand how to perfectly navigate everything about you, your every whim and your every mood, but you don't feel any need to change anything. And she, you know, obviously when being called out like that recognizes, oh, that's a problem, yada, yada. But then if, if her behavior doesn't actually align with recognizing that that's a problem, if all she does is give lip service to I'm not perfect and of course I need to change and grow too, but there's no evidence of that, we're, we're determined by what we do, not what we say. Right. Yeah. I, and I encourage them, you know, there's no definitive line. There's no objective point to say, okay, this is when you know. But it's more of an intuitive thing when you know you've tried everything that you can um, to get to the other side of this. And you just realize that, that your partner is un, unwilling to budge. Yeah. That their heels just are it in. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, and then and you're right. You can't objectively quantify it. No. You can't say, well, based on this behavior, and and that's that's what makes it hard. But that's the reality of it. You're right. You have to be able to intuit a lot of this stuff. Yep. So I don't know. What do you think is is next for I guess the the evolution of 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 all of this? Like, do you think that these ideas are going to be bringing more, or or I guess success to relationships do you think that that's where we're headed now i do i think one of the things that is so crucial is being able to get these ideas and uh, there's two things that i think are, are hugely crucial about this one is framing it as pro-masculinity as opposed to anti-feminism mm -hmm. um, and obviously there's a whole lot of reasons that go into that none you know whether that has to do with the optics of the way that the world is now or just that if you're only defined by being the opposite of your enemy, then that means your your enemy always has to exist. Otherwise, you don't have an identity. <laughs> so obviously being pro-masculinity and pro-traditional gender roles and kind of pro the natural bifurcation of the sexes and all that kind of stuff, there's being pro that as opposed to being anti-postmodernism and feminism and everything else. Mm -hmm. um, but then two, it's being able to get to boys before they before they allow this to develop into a problem. My wife and I were joking about this the other day. We were uh, watching The Office and she commented on how frustrating that show was because every boy that she went to high school with wanted to be Jim. And Jim's not, he's not a bad person, but he's soft and he's, <laughs> and he's weak and he's passive aggressive and he's got a ton of untapped potential 
that he's too scared to actually do anything with. And he's a coward and he kind of epitomizes the blue pill. But the way that he's portrayed on that show, Jim's the character. He's the hero. He's the one who gets the girl. Things work out for him in the end. And so that kind of stuff is being fed to our boys as opposed to giving them real heroes. Cause it's so much easier to just not allow the problem to become a problem with the next generation than it is to try and fix them in divorce or in marriage or in anything else like that. And that's why even as I, as I go back and I listen to the music that I listened to in high school, my parents had problem with it because of the swearing and I won't let my kids listen to that same music, not because of the swearing, but because of the messaging of you're never going to be good enough. She's always going to be with the better guys, all the emo crap. That's way more poisonous than a few mm-hmm. four letter words. Right. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting. Even on the radio today, I had to keep my mouth shut <laughs> <laughs> a bit because we were talking about a lot of sort of liberalist ideals mm-hmm. and sensitivities. And I, I, get, I get the utility of it, but I think this is at the basis of it. I think when we can relate to each other um, as a man to a woman, a husband to a wife, a mother to a father, parent to child, I think we'll sort out the rest. I think this is the, the result of a very long time um, in the making of poor dynamics uh, playing out. Um, and I think to this point, I made a post, I think yesterday or something about how, you know, liberalism, the paradox of liberalism is how it's putting us all in, in prisons where we can't, you know, be free to do anything because it's offensive to everybody you know when we're when we're able to relate to each other without that sensitivity because you know we can be men and we can be women and we can uh, get back to some of these things that I, I don't think it's going to be as pronounced socioculturally either uh, well, I don't know that we can fix it the other way around I agree and I think that that's where I ultimately my belief is that the the family the nuclear family is the it's the the foundation of any functional society. And that's where, because if girls grow up in homes with strong fathers, then they know what to look for in their husbands and in everything else. If boys grow up in homes with strong fathers, then they know what kind of men they're supposed to become. And then vice versa, when they grow up in homes with good, with good mothers, as opposed to everybody trying to compensate for some lack that we have to be sensitive about whether or not we actually acknowledge that it's a lack because it happens so frequently but it is if you don't get to grow up with a dad and a mom who love each other and they love you and they function well as a family you're missing out and everything else is trying to somehow compensate for and make up for that and that's what's so frustrating me about both sides of the coin whether it's the the blue pill and the liberal and the liberalism or some of the super militant guys in the red pill or anything else is it's if, unless you can give people a family and you can give them strong men and strong women to both emulate and to look for when they become adults, then everything else is trying to compensate for that. Yeah, I, I agree. Absolutely. Because, you know, you're not we even talked about this in the mental health realm the other day. We had a presentation or a training with someone and we were saying how. Um, you know, you don't, you don't learn to self-regulate. And when you can't self-regulate, yeah. then it's just bleeding out all over the place and all these poor coping skills and demands put in inappropriate places with inappropriate people. And it's just a mess. Absolutely. Yeah. And how, <laughs> how many of the problems do we see both online and offline, but in our postmodern world that ultimately come down to people not knowing how to self-regulate? 
most of it I would say (laughs) most of it (laughs) yeah and even now like I'm really trying to promote you know the idea that and the, the reason why I left work, um, formal work, uh, is to to really promote the idea that mental health is something that we do uh, have to take accountability for ourselves, and that it's actually much less um, of an issue of of organic illness. It's a small minority of mental illnesses or are organic biological illnesses that are involuntary and unavoidable. <laughs> right. Well, and what sucks is that people will hear that and they'll say, oh, well, she's just saying that they're fake. And it's like, no, 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 no. Because if you're born without a leg, it's not any less real than if you make a stupid mistake and your leg gets cut off. Either exactly. way, you don't have the leg. Right. But we can still diagnose well, you don't put it in the freaking bandsaw so you don't get it cut off. And right. you know, people are going to say, well, that's hateful. Or you're just saying that my leg's not really cut off. And it's like, don't be ridiculous. Of course it's there. Let's prevent it from not being a real problem when it doesn't have to be. And let those few people who were born with those things be the only people who have to struggle with that. That is a beautiful way of explaining it. I'm going to use that. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly it. And I think... People are being so overly sensitive right now and defensive about this idea because so many people have worked so hard to get mental illness, for instance, acknowledged. And Uh so now they feel like that's the only way to validate it, exactly like what you said. And so it's funny how... um, inflexible people can be you know you you try to 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 find a solution one way and it doesn't work or maybe you somehow get some foothold and 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 you're you're getting some leeway and then all of a sudden you know you you can't seem to switch gears when things change the context shifts you know it's always moving forward yeah so now it's like, I'm a very adaptable person. So it's almost like if you can't beat them, join them or use what you got. I don't know. I'm just much more of that mindset. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if, if we went too off, off the range no, there, fun. but you know, a lot of what I appreciate is, is being able to, to talk with people like you. I think, you know, you are exactly the type of person that I love to hear from and, and just know a little bit more about your story. Cause I, I think it just brings it all to the forefront and hopefully people can begin to emulate the, the, the positives there, you know? I hope so. Yeah. And obviously I have my own things that I'm working on and that's what I love about where we are both at our corner of Twitter and everything else. But it's, I love the idea of self-optimization that we have our own community of people who recognize that I'm really happy with who I am. And I recognize that there are things that I can improve upon. Those are not mutually exclusive ideas. And in fact, they work together very, very well. And so Mm -hmm. that's why it's fun to have not only men, but to see more and more women who are online in this sphere, because Yes, I agree with guys like Rolo when they say that women shouldn't tell men how to be men. I totally agree with that. But that doesn't mean that self-optimization and striving for a better a better society, a better world is something that is only up to men. And that, that doesn't mean that we can't comment on or recognize other things that go on across the aisle between the different sexes or things like that. And so it's always fun to have more people in the fight of let's without anybody else making us be better, let's become better because we realize that it's just a better world for it. This has been helpful for you. Is there anything awesome. else that, that you wanted to discuss before we end? No, I love this. I mean, this is very different than most of the stuff that we get to go on. And honestly, I, I enjoy being able to talk about these things because most of the time style for me is just kind of a metaphor, you know, uh, even kind of how we talked about suits always being the same or things like that. This is the stuff that's really fun to talk about. So I appreciate 
you bringing me on and, and going through stuff that's a little bit different than just, uh, you know, what guys should wear or not wear. Thanks for listening to the Babecast. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to my Apple Podcast channel or my Anchor FM channel or catch me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest at Dr. Babe Love Life.